Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally a polder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. Welcome to Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. Connor, how are we supposed to do a podcast with nothing on the news? Talk about a slow Yeah, yawn, right? Nothing happening. No massive grassroots systemic changes to our society. One exciting thing, though, I did get uh, from Amazon a book I ordered a while back. It's really cool. Uh, It's called Soviet Bus Stops. And, um, Good. Let's do a podcast about this book. It's have, called Soviet Pod. Have you heard about this before? Bus stop. Have you heard about? No. What well, is Soviet uh, bus stops are famous because they are actually works of state art. Wow. And as you can see, just lift. Uh, wow. The viewers, listeners, that. listeners can't see, but I'll tell you what. These are some lovely, hideous, dilapidated bus stops. Yeah. There. Well, I thought that since I've got Fox News on on the right side, twenty four uh, hours our, a day of our massive studio here, I thought we should have you know Soviet bus stops right. on, on your leftist, side. Right. Leftist, the leftist alternative, of course. Yeah. Just to inspire. I both think of both us. Uh, objects, uh, that TV tuned to Fox News and this book, are about as informative about current events. So, so that's perfect. So uh, if you, if any of you out there uh, in podcast land would like to uh, get it, it's by Christopher Herwig, H E R W I G. Yes, it's a real book. It's a Soviet classic. Bus stops. So uh, we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, should the president have proposed sending in the army? That's a provocative issue. Quite. Uh, should we defund the cops? Uh, is Trump actually going to benefit from a backlash against the rioting? And the role of Bill Barr this year, big uh, cover story in the New York Times Magazine this morning. We're taping this on Sunday, the 7th, and uh, all about Bill Barr. So we're going to get into all of that stuff. Also, though, I think we should revive a feature. Uh, Ooh, we used to do, love our Connor, uh, when we, we did our our podcast on CRN uh, Talk Radio mm-hmm. with Ken Jeffries. Every week we would have a, a moron of the week oh, yeah. candidate. We'd have, we'd have two or three and we'd vote at the end on who the most idiotic person of the week was. I'm going to nominate President Trump this week because when he was talking about how wonderful the unemployment numbers are, there was fantastic news. Somehow he worked into the conversation that it was a great day for George Floyd, the man who died at the hands of the police officer. And, of course, that was strange. Uh, the words the president Strange, I'd were, say, is an understatement. So he said, hopefully, George is looking down right now and saying, this is a great thing that's happening for our country. This is a great day for him. It's a great day for everybody. It was awkward, I would say. I think if he had to do over again, perhaps he wouldn't have phrased it just that way. So he Probably would be not. the candidate for do, Moron of the Week. Do murdered people have great days? That's a good question. Yeah, I, I don't know what he was thinking, um, but you know, so many times whenever Trump has got something good uh, to talk about, an accomplishment, he kind of steps on it, and certainly he people did have in this, this perception case. of him that he's this sort of marketing genius, that he's a whiz, that he always is the spin master. He's not. He does twenty things wrong. He just throws darts randomly, blindfolded at the at the wall. Well, he has his good his days and his bad days. His and supporters pe- latch onto the one out of twenty things well, that he that they feel went the best and say, "Look, he's a genius." And nineteen things went horribly. Well, people but, who throw on. darts don't beat sixteen Republican grizzled candidates and then beat a Hillary. 
True. Uh, so True. You, know, you, doing, you did something right. You did something right. So let's talk about Army boots on the ground in the Fairfax District. If you live in Los Angeles, you know where the Fairfax District is, where the, it's the famous farmer's market area. So President Trump uh, made a promise he was going to use the military to, to quell violence. And shocker, this triggered an intense debate. Absolutely. And the debate does have a lot of deep roots here. I think we've got some uh, some police or military some coming sirens right coming. now. Yep, they're going to lock us up. That's Trump. He's sent in the National Guard. It's almost like uh, mixed uh, martial acts we've got here. We've got an, Ooh, 1870, nice. an 1878 law with this oddball God. Latin name, the Posse Comitatus Act. Mixed martial acts. That restricts the federal government's right to use the military domestically. Okay, so that seems clear. 1878, you can't use the, the military domestically. <clears throat> I don't think people like the idea of tanks rolling through the suburbs. It puts people in the mind of tyranny. So right. enforced by the military. <clears throat> but then there's... The other act, the Dueling Law, the Insurrection Act of 1807, even older, that does allow the president to use the army to suppress civil disorder. So nothing like a good 19th century legislative debate to, to take our minds off COVID. This was, of course, thrown into the news and became the news, the meta narrative about uh, about how we talk about whether the president should be using the military against the people, uh, the people of the of our country. Uh, he shouldn't. Um, it became the news when Tom Cotton uh, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times in which he said, send in the troops. Now's the time to roll uh, through uh, the American version of Tiananmen Square. He didn't say that. Uh, and, uh, and, and have a show of force and clear the streets. This was followed up by Trump saying, we need to dominate the battle space, sir, and saying more force right. is the answer to every problem, basically. But and there was a big backlash against Tom Cotton and said, ah, oh, this is bad, this is a dangerous hotbed, who knows? And as of just a couple of hours ago, the editor-in-chief at the New York Times, who's in charge of the op-ed page, Michael Bennett, has resigned effective immediately. Oh, I didn't hear that. Yes. I know there was a big kerfuffle over that this. That is today's news. I could, well, also, <clears throat> Minneapolis defunding the police, who you yeah. were telling me I, I wasn't up on the news today. Sunday but, night. A lot's happening on Sunday night. So let's talk about Senator Cotton for a second, though, because I was actually stunned by this. Apparently at the New York Times, it's not enough to preach the progressive gospel on the front page and preach it on the editorial page. We have learned this week it's essential that just one view be reflected on the op-ed page as well. I mean, I don't get it. I mean, I totally give the Wall Street Journal the right to put mostly right-wing op-ed pieces on their uh, op-ed page. They do that. That's their right. It's their newspaper. Same thing with the New York Times. If you want to put a, a vast majority of left-wing op-ed pieces on your paper, on your paper's op-ed page, which you do, that's fine. But to announce that when Senator Tom Cotton uh, was so irresponsible, so dangerous, that this is a cause for great consternation. I mean, it was like they gave op-ed space to Alex Jones to argue the Sandy Hook parents made up the deaths of their children or let the head of the American Nazi Party argue for a fresh look at World War II. That was how people reacted to the New York Times having their horrendous judgment to allow Senator Tom Cotton, military veteran and, and pretty much an expert on this stuff. Yes, he's right wing, but but he knows his stuff. I mean, Connor, I mean, you're telling me that the, the guy who, who gave the green light to, to Cotton has resigned from the New York Times? Yeah, he's had uh, he's had a very uh, storied history um, at the New York Times of making really, really bad decisions uh, as the op-ed page. He, he hired Barry Weiss, um, who uh, 
she wrote a column recently that received a lot of backlash about this supposed epidemic of totalitarianism, totalitarianism fascism right. uh, from the left uh, in universities uh, across the U.S. when that doesn't appear to exist and there's apparently no citation basically to her uh, to her her piece. Um, this guy uh, hired uh, Quinn Norton, um, who's this either apologist, Nazi apologist, or friends with Nazi apologists, uh, and then they immediately had to fire him. Uh, they hired Brett Stevens, who's a climate denier, and Woody Allen apologist. It, it, these people are are you know, not the best conservative voices to have on your op-ed page, but this is who the New York Times was hiring, and he's had so many problems and conflicts that there was this basically revolt of the young versus the, uh, the, the young guard versus the old guard at the New York Times, and they said, look, we got to stop making these mistakes. We got to stop putting these bad pieces on our pages. The question is not, should we have both sides? Of course, we can all point to both sides and say we want to have conservative voices and liberal voices uh, appear on our op-ed page. The question is whether there's some sort of quality. I was just reading in the uh, the Times today a piece by Peter Navarro, who is one of tr- Trump's like- The trade advisor, right? He's a, a business uh, stooge who, who Trump swept in a bunch of- I think a, he a, prefers a, trade advisor. Probably. Or... He's, he's one of these business bros who has no idea how the world works, how government should work, and Trump just said, well, well you business have a business better experience. than stooge. It is. Yeah, much better. And uh, he, his entire piece was saying, well, the, the it, literally the title of the headline of the piece was, uh, the world will love us again once our economy is good enough. In, in, in okay. different words. And the whole article provided no argument as to why. It was just, well, as soon as the economy grows and grows and grows, uh, because that's the only thing I think we can just, you know, cut more taxes and make the make Wall Street go up, uh, then the world will love us again. It completely ignores the reality that that Obama presided over this massive growth in the economy, and then Trump took over, and the economy kept growing like gangbusters, and the, and the world still hated us in, in every way because they don't just look at you know the economy. It's the economy stupid on a global scale. That's not how you get countries to like you. I we'll be so prosperous, they'll love us. That's not how it works. I so why the, is Peter Navarro's op-ed on those pages? What is the value of reading that Trump administration press release? There's nothing there. Well, this is maybe it'll be better space. now that this guy's gone. I really think that the amazing news about the unemployment rate actually dropping I think Obama gets the credit for that because you know the stuff he put into effect many years ago. I think it's just now flowering. Yeah. Let's talk about defunding the police. Uh, I don't quite get it. No one does I mean, yet. Why? What a brilliant idea. Why don't we stop making antibiotics too, okay? <laughs> Defund the police. Look, it's okay because we could just binge watch the Mad Max movies for tips, okay? <laughs> that's, that's what's going to happen. What are people talking about? Well, How is- about this instead? Let's double police funds after we implement reforms. Number one, fire the cops who rack up civilian and supervisor complaints and who commit off-duty conduct. In Chicago, 5% of cops account for 33% of civilian complaints. Why don't we fire them? Fire their leadership where appropriate. Studies show lots of precincts discourage or ignore civilian complaints. Hell, administer polygraph tests or psychological tests, whatever it takes to build a better force. Mm -hmm. And then... Let's boost the cops' pay to attract even more qualified candidates. That way we get better, happier cops and happier communities. And isn't that, and isn't that going to solve the problem? Get rid of the bad ones. Don't defund the police department. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase from a great Twitter thread that has gone viral uh, in the last couple of days by a woman named okay. Bridget Eileen. Um, and she— well, A woman with two names, two uh, first names. Two first names, yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, so she points out 
that <clears throat> the abolish the police movement um, or defund the police movement or rethink the police movement or whatever you want to call it is not this idea that we're going to establish like a free-for-all Mad Max anarchy oh, where people, uh, you know, you just hope that people, you know, police themselves and nobody decides to rob you. That's not how it works. <laughs> Abolishing the police is the idea of ending the police as an institution as we know it. What we know right now is that we have given almost every single one of our frontline pressing social issues and handed it over to the people who have guns and handcuffs and the ability to put people in prison and said, right. will you solve it? So we've got a massive crisis in housing in this country and homelessness is, is on the rise and it, it destroys lives. And we say, well, let's criminalize it and send in cops. And we've got judges who are forced to say, whoa, this is not how you should be dealing with with homelessness. You can't evict people off the street where they're living when they have literally nowhere else to go and put them in jail for it because it's like debtor's prison or it's like, you know, how we used to put people who we thought were lesser in asylums and sterilize them and just say, well, the next generation will be bred out back when we thought eugenics was a super great idea. See Buck v. Bell, Supreme Court case that's never been overturned that says you can sterilize people if you just think they're dumb great. Like, this is our history that we have to deal with. We've decided that police and guns and handcuffs are the so, solution to every problem. Drugs are a massive problem in so, our country, so, so we criminalize like, them. We so, throw people in jail because they have the, the problem, the dependency on drugs. There's, why is that criminal? So we need to define the concept of defunding the police, which I think will try to do a little bit after we pause. This is Too Many yeah, Lawyers. And we do hope that you uh, you rate <laughs> and uh, subscribe to us. Yeah, so if you're on iTunes, if you get us on Apple Podcasts, that is, uh, right in the app, Apple Podcast app, you can you can uh, uh, leave us a review, you know, five stars, ten stars, whatever, and let, write a little thing. I love Connor yeah, so much. The, either great. five or ten. He's the best. Would be fine. Or the average seven and a half stars. Great. Either Yeah, that's good, too. Um, or if you're on any other uh, app, if you use Podcast Addict or Stitcher or anything else, they all have ways to rate and leave feedback on the podcast. So do it so we you can see what you like and what you don't like, whether you like more of the month features and everything else, and leave a little note, and we'll, uh, we'll definitely uh, read it. Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Stoke Connor Oaks. So we're talking about defunding the police, and, uh, you know, one issue, um, Connor, is... You're saying you know it's a nuanced thing. Right. It doesn't mean we want to have a police department. Right. I don't know if you could really blame me for jumping to a conclusion, though, because you know there are people who <clears throat> so object to the carceral state that Correct. they say we should abolish prisons, and right. they literally say, literally mean it. We we will not have prisons. Instead, right. what we will do is we will take the alleged perpetrator, uh, supposed offender, who and give them a really know, may, firm may, hug. Well, not exactly that. We'll sit them down in a room and have them interact with, well, the victim, if the victim is still alive, or the family of the victim, if the victim tragically somehow uh, lost their life in the course of the commission of a felony. And and they'll have sort of a, of a session. Now, this is seriously what some right. people think is yeah. the appropriate reaction. So, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong when I am concerned when I hear people saying well, we're, we're going to defund concerned. the police. You're right. We're now, Minneapolis concerned. apparently is talking in terms of defunding the so police. Do we the, know what that will involve? So what we know so far is that the, the city council uh, passed with a veto-proof majority that they're behind uh, abolishing the relationship, the city's relationship with the uh, police department in Minneapolis, which means 
that means no money. We're not going to employ cops uh, at, at the police department in Minneapolis anymore. Now, what does that mean tomorrow that there'll be a bunch of people with guns wandering around and no contracts? No, we, we don't know exactly how it's going to happen. But that's what this whole movement is about. It's about recognizing that no one knows what a healthy police force should look like. We can look at other countries that have successfully uh, done it. And then they said the Minneapolis police uh, city council said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at other places that have very dramatically different relationships with police and policing and say, this is how those places have tried to solve social ills instead of trying to turn cops into social workers that have to deal with every problem that we have. And then basically only giving them guns and prison to deal with it. If we know that cops with guns and handcuffs in prison has been a cover, a way to smother and and cover up and ignore societal problems, especially uh, uh, systemic racism for the entire history of the United States. And so we get back to the point in the very early point where it was literally police were there to protect capital and nothing else and landowners and nothing else. If we recognize that it's been a cover for that, we just got to get rid of it. Incremental change, as they said, incremental change has not worked. So what dramatic change should we take? Well, we don't know yet. <laughs> More no to one follow. Knows. So the New York Times this morning had a big piece about uh, folks taking aim at police unions. And they point mm-hmm. out that the police unions fight to keep arbitration hearings behind closed doors. Right. They use their donations and their clout to uh, stop efforts to increase accountability. Uh, they point out that union membership generally has dropped by half nationally since the early 80s, but down to 10%. But police unions have uh, much higher membership rates. Uh, a single New York police, uh, New York City police union has spent over a million bucks on state and local races in the, in the last several years. St. Louis, the DA proposed a unit within the prosecutor's office to independently investigate police misconduct, but the union said no. Mm-hmm. So shouldn't we make it easier to replace bad cops? I mean, if a heart surgeon had a drug or an alcohol problem and he periodically showed up impaired, wouldn't we want him to be replaced immediately? Well, yeah. the cops' jobs are just as important as the heart surgeons, yeah. right? Yeah, you see protesters' signs that say, you know, uh, police uh, training. Bench bad heart surgeons. <laughs> police training is, you know, six months and hairstylist training is 18 months. This is something that we, we, we've taken this, this pipeline of people who want to be cops and we end up putting a gun in their hand and sending them out on the street without any real good so ethical direction. So you're agreeing we ought to reduce the power of the uh, police uh, unions? Yes. Police unions and don't ne- really- Next, uh, we go to the teachers. Police right? unions don't really resemble other unions because police unions, by their nature, uh, because the police are an, ap- an, an arm of the state, which is designed to protect capital, unlike teachers' unions, which are a way to protect teachers who are there to teach kids- Cops are there, like well, crimes of violence aren't involving protecting a property. Well, it's you're right. They they have other roles, as we said. We have them do lots of things, but police unions are more like organized crime syndicates than they are like a classical concept of a union. Th- these are people with guns. Who so have I don't think power. you're going to be calling nine one one anytime soon. I mean, I you? will because they're going to treat me really well, which is the problem. Uh, not when they r- listen to the tape of this podcast. That's true. That's a good point. Uh, what about the political impact, Connor, of the um, of the reaction to the violence in the streets? Yeah. Um, some people are saying that, well, you've got a half-hearted reaction by the left to street violence. They're saying, well, let's yes, there's violence, but let's focus on the cause. We've got to get rid of systemic um, racism. You know, you you got to break a few eggs if you're going to make an omelet. Mm-hmm. Um, 
might this lead to Trump's reelection? I mean, for for those people who don't dispense media wisdom on the two coasts for a living, I think the situation is straightforward. There are peaceful protests, and then there is looting and assault and murder. Crime isn't political or racial. The criminals and the victims come in all races. The looters aren't acting on an irresistible impulse to strike back against police brutality. They're acting on an irresistible impulse to get the sneakers in the window. So isn't that going to help Trump in November? Well, I think the fact that that there is looting and violence is going to help Trump with the hardest of the hardcore law and order, I'm afraid, crowd of Trump voters. But those people were always going to vote for Trump anyway. And I think that there's so What about so the many- silent majority? You know from your political science history in 1968, Richard Nixon beat Hubert Humphrey for the presidency because of the silent majority. There was worry about violence and crime in the streets. And isn't that what Donald Trump is going to be able to exploit in the light of this situation? This is actually, I think, very different than than a law and order uh, crime, you know, inter- interpersonal crime uh, fear monger campaign that Trump wants to turn this into. It's why he's tweeting in all caps, law and order. He wants to become Nixon, <laughs> shocker in every way, and win the same way Nixon did. But that's not going to happen because people out there are not afraid that they are going to be the victims of street crime, right? They're not afraid that their car is going to get broken into. They might think to themselves, I don't want my home, my business, or my car to be in the way of a protest. But there's not a lot of risk that, of that happening for the vast majority of Americans. You think people were worried when they saw the images on TV of the, of the violence and not a lot oh, of I apparent think, pushback by I, cops? I think that they are <laughs> I think that they are definitely worried by the the, the pictures of, of you know violent protest right. or looting happening on TV, but then they see that it doesn't materialize on their street or every main street. That it was very local. That it was oh, very I limited. Mean, that elderly that, retired black uh, St. Louis police chief who was killed. Uh, people hear uh, stories like that, and they they see all these folks who have been struggling to overcome COVID. Finally, there's a glimmer of hope, and their their small businesses are destroyed by the looting. I mean, I think that really got. You're people. right that the media is reinforcing those narratives of those tiny little examples of how protests have turned violent or looters to take advantage of protests in some limited circumstances. But the airwaves are flooded with constant videos of police brutality. That is what people are afraid of. People are going to look out their windows and say, well, who am I more afraid of? It's cops, not random humans. I, they're not going to call the cops because they're afraid that the cops are going to hurt them when they show up. So do you have confidence in the polls that show Biden's Absolutely. kind of comfortably Biden ahead? is going to destroy Trump. He's going to smash him. I think this he's is, up by seven points, like 49 never, to 42, something like there's that. There's never been a more disruptive time in American history. And like it or not, presidents get blamed for the situations that they're in. We hope that presidents can take the reins and fix things when they're going wrong. And guess what? You're surrounded by a pandemic and social unrest. Right. And everybody just well, thinks me- he understands he's just ridiculous and unfit. Anybody in the middle who's sane says, this guy shouldn't be the president. So yeah, he's going down to flames. Let me ask you this. How many Americans chatting with a millennial pollster, Mm -hmm. they know to consider Trump an orange, xenophobic, racist, knuckle-dragging, mouth-breathing troglodyte, will say, put me down for the president, young fella, and that's no malarkey. How many of those uh, people are going to say that? You know, I I don't know. I, I, I... I can't, I can't, I pull an eight silver and uh, grab a number um, from wherever and and figure out uh, what exactly is going to be, you know, the the outcome of the of the election. But I'm confident that people, the protest voters, are going to change their votes. 
I think the unthinking voters who didn't think there was any way Trump would actually win have all changed their votes. I think that the people who would you would describe as, you know, in the the middle and capable of being swayed, they're going to change their votes. And so the question in my mind is now who's left? Well, you can inflame your base and excite your base. And I think Biden is failing miserably to do that. That's the count that he's he, he's he's failing on. They'll but get out of the you don't soon. you don't need to incite your base if your base is already literally out in the streets protesting. If they're screaming and yelling and saying our lives are in danger, we want to change the fundamental institutions of our country or our state or our city. Biden just gets to ride that wave. So I think his failing is being made up for by this situation. Well, Donald Trump may have a secret weapon, and his name is William Barr. We're going to talk about the Attorney General when we come back on Too Many Lawyers. Stick with us. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. Yeah, I'm Connor Oaks. So William Barr, Attorney General, it's the second time around for him, you know. He was Attorney General under, uh, under Bush 41 uh, back in the early 90s. And uh, New York Times, uh, Sunday Magazine uh, this morning, uh, this is June 7th, uh, had a cover story on William Barr. Mm -hmm. And they point out his role is giving him really enormous influence on three separate political fronts as we head into November. The first is the the Trump fight to open the nation's economy. And the article pointed out that uh, could depend in no small part on Barr's interpretation of federal authority and his ability to twist governor's arms. So the opening of the economy, and of course we saw dramatic evidence Friday that the, we're, we're looking better on the unemployment front. That's one issue. The second issue are the mechanics of the vote itself. And this is a huge controversial issue. Yeah. And the Justice Department is showing a growing willingness to weigh <clears throat> in. Uh, Barr's position is, you know, there are a bunch of foreign countries that could make counterfeit ballots, putting uh, names on them, send them in, and so on. And the Democrats are saying it's too dangerous. We can't have people go into the polls. Of course, by November, probably, hopefully, there won't be nearly the concern uh, about going to the polls. And, and the final area where Barr is going to be maybe a huge factor is this ongoing investigation by John Durham. He's the U.S. attorney in Connecticut who's looking into the origins of the FBI's Russia probe in the run-up to the 2016 election. And these findings are actually expected before the November election. And people are talking about some big names, not Hillary Clinton, you know, Obama-type names, but you know, Clapper and Brennan and, and people like that that could be in the crosshairs of uh, either Barr or his guy, John Dunham. So I guess the question is, uh, do we think that William Barr is is a, like a secret weapon for Donald Trump? Well, he's an incredibly powerful weapon. He's been an incredibly powerful weapon. He gets to put on the face of the establishment and say, folks, if you're turned off by the fact that Trump is this uh, crazy person, uh, a wild man who doesn't play by any rules, uh, if you're more of like a, a play-by-the-rules conservative, uh, we've got this guy who can pretend to be a respectable figure and put on the face and say, well, I'm Bill Barr, and I've been in the government before, and I'll tell you what, Trump's just such a swell dude. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to really help Trump, and has really helped Trump so far, to have that guy, uh, you know, put put on a, a press presence for him. And that's mm -hmm. why, now, Barr has not always done a great job of it. He's had a bunch of missteps. Uh, today, he had an interview of Face the Nation. It was only one on the Sunday shows. And he's tried to equivocate and say, well, we, we didn't use, we didn't use uh, uh, chemical weapons on on the protesters in Lafayette Square in front of the, the White House. We used, we used uh, a, a 
pepper spray and pepper spray pepper's not a it's not a chemical and what's going, the difference what is that chemi-? he's trying to say it's not a synthetic uh, irritant instead well, it's a natural okay, irritant <laughs> as though it matters what's irritating your eyes well let me ask you this Connor. it does did matter he, did but... he pull a full ginsburg this morning on on the morning shows do you know what that refers to <clears throat> no i don't know okay that. here's the deal it hit me. monica Lewinsky during the big controversy with bill clinton had a lawyer named william ginsburg and Mr. Ginsburg, on one Sunday back in the 1990s, set the all-time record of appearing on all five Sunday morning shows. Amazing. All five networks. I mean, he with the limo was racing him around. He's really so getting- everybody is measured against the full Ginsburg. That's so very Barr was, you know, maybe one out of five. He doesn't yeah. measure up. The other element that Barr is really helping Trump out with right now is Barr, that has the head of the DOJ, has recruited a bunch of people, mostly from the Bureau of Prisons, that is prison guards, to- to patrol the, st- the streets of Washington, D.C. Really? And there was enormous controversy because they're not identified as such. They're wearing no insignias and they refuse to tell people who they are. And that's a huge problem for people who are trying to keep p- police officers, law enforcement accountable. Warden for them incognito. To not... <laughs> To not have a badge with a badge number or a name tag or even an organization to say the NYPD did this or Washington, D.C. police did this. Instead, mm-hmm. they just only identified themselves as being, quote, with the DOJ, mm-hmm. meaning they're, they're bars shock troopers. And eventually, uh, news outlets were able to discover that they're mostly uh, p- prison guards who were handpicked uh, from lots of different places, predominantly Texas, but lots of other places, yeah. to come patrol the streets of Washington, D.C. Uh, handpicked. Uh, predominantly from Texas. I wonder what they all have in common. They're almost all white. Right out of the Shawshank Redemption. It, yeah, the so, idea that, that Americans are saying to themselves, oh yeah, what I want out of my country is to be controlled and corralled by prison guards when I'm not even in prison, that that's Trump's America. I, I, Thank I God. Know. Thank God know, we're kind of, finally here. I'm not sure if that's the, your most serious objection to the Trump administration. Maybe it's in the I got top a couple. 10. I got a couple. So here's my take on the Bill Barr profile in the New York Times. I'm reading along and it, it, it's not that negative. I mean, it's sort of even handed. I'm thinking, what is it? This New York Times? Well, now we come... Cod people? Now we come to a paragraph near the end of the article, and I think this is why the whole thing was written. And right. here's the paragraph. Uh, Stuart Gerson, who led the Justice Department uh, Civil Division when uh, Barr was AG before... He said, quote, those who think Barr is a tool of Donald Trump are missing the point. If anything, it's the other way around. Barr is vastly more intelligent than Donald Trump. What Trump gives Bill Barr is a canvas upon which to paint. Close quote. I think that's why the article ran, because I think the New York Times just loves the idea of Trump reading that and the steam is going to be coming out of his right. ears. Yeah. Absolutely. So division in the ranks. We may see a, a tweet firing Bill Barr as a result of that. Oh, yeah. Any day now. So Joe Biden, uh, I think Joe is a, a fan of shares. Big uh, hit. If I could turn back time, because I think Biden would like to hop into his hot tub time machine and go back to before he announced that 10 to 15 percent of Americans are not very good people this week. Do you think Politically, maybe that wasn't so smart since Hillary, by most accounts, really took a hit when she called people deplorables, you know, xenophobic, racist, and so on. 
I mean, you know, 15% of Americans adds up, if my calculator is right, to 41 million out of 328 million Americans. Don't you think it was a little dangerous for, for Biden to use some inflammatory language that I think no matter a what, little like Hillary? I think no matter what Biden says, Fox News is going to find a way to distort it into another well, basket. Well, they're very of, creative. Yeah, of another basket of deplorables comment. I don't think that this was especially damning or damaging for well, him. Well, if he said, I love all Americans, I think they'd have their work cut out for yeah, but that's what he says 90% of the time because he's a boring politician, just says crap like that. But yeah, when he says there are bad, I mean, if he said there are bad people, he didn't put a percent on it, he might have meant 50%. But you, the fact that he got too specific allowed them to warp this around and say, doesn't that sound a little bit like Hillary? This is ridiculous. He, he made a comment where he said not everybody's a good person. Was that a useful or productive comment? Probably not. It didn't do anything. It didn't accomplish anything. It didn't help the world at all to say some people are just inherently bad. That's not good. That, why? That doesn't bring us together. That doesn't make me feel better or hopeful about the future or provide a path forward or advice for how we should live our lives. It doesn't do anything. But was it harmful? No, it was just dumb. I think it's just too close. It's deplorable four syllables that arguably sunk Hillary. Well, also there was My God, Jimmy Jim, Comey. Are we Jim Jimmy Carrey Comey. counting syllables in 27 now? Yes, very not very good people. <laughs> I don't know how many syllables that is. Um, finally, let's talk uh, Let's talk polls, Connor. A yeah, big poll came them. out. Wall, big poll. Big Wall poll Street fan. Journal, NBC News, 1,000 registered voters. Trump's approval stands at 45%, down 1% I believe from, from April. Lowest in American history. Yeah, I don't think there's ever been a president in American history that hasn't, at least for a single day during his time as president, been uh, above 50 percent approval. Never before until Trump. He's the only one. So we talked earlier uh, about how Biden's up seven points. He's 49 to 42 percent. Um there is, they break it down. Uh, Trump is better at getting people back to work and helping the unemployment problem. Americans in the poll uh, picked Trump over Biden, 48 to 35 there. And if you believe the old Bill Clinton uh, business about it's the economy, stupid, that that's kind of a good sign for for, um, for Trump. Trump also held a slight advantage, 43% to 40% on who could best deal with China. But overall, I mean, you know, it's uh, Americans said that they prefer Democrats over Republicans, 51% to 40 in terms of controlling Congress. Uh, 55% of Americans disapproved of Trump's handling of the virus. That's worse than the 52% it was in, in April of uh, 52 disapproving and now 55. Yeah. That's not good for him. No, it's not. I mean, look. There are going to be encouraging signs as we come out of this COVID crisis. For example, the jobs report we just got this last week, which the Bureau of Labor Statistics, after it came out and said that the unemployment rate is currently 13.3%, they said, oh, yeah, actually, like a day later after Trump was trumpeting about it, uh, we made a major error. It shouldn't have been 13.3. It should have been more like 16.3. But it doesn't matter because April was 16, was 19.7. So we're, we're improving because the, the, the worst of the coronavirus appears to be over until the second wave. It's coming. Everybody keep your mask. Oh my God! But that, like, it, it, we're going to get encouraging signs, and that's going to look like the economy is improving, and it's going to be the job of the Democrats to point out uh, that the economy could be in so much better place. And the economy is not just Wall Street, and it's not even just the unemployment. It's many, 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 many other factors, and all of them could be better off if we'd had a real response to the pandemic instead of closing our eyes, putting our hands in our ears, and sounding la, 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 which is what Trump did. So finally, on the issue of uh, the pandemic, this is an interesting stat out of that uh, Wall Street Journal NBC poll. 
Two-thirds of Americans say they always wear a mask when they leave the house, compared with 21% who say, I sometimes wear a mask, and 15% say they rarely or never do. I can't wait until we're wearing masks purely for style. Like, we wear, people wear glasses with no glass or friends or just no no prescription. Yep. Masks are coming. You know, I don't, I don't have to shave when I wear a mask. It's great. I think we all should have invested in mask companies. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, we somehow created the podcast in spite of the uh, nothing happening week. You know, yeah. It was just a, yeah, an amazing yeah, yeah. week, in fact. And hopefully it'll be safer and quieter next week. We'll see you again on Too Many Lawyers. Bye, everybody. Bye.